Welcome to The Alternative Investor, the show where we discuss, debunk, and demystify all things about investing in alternative assets. Hi, Brad. Hello, Grayson. I'm very excited about today. Absolutely. Let's get into it. Okay. Let's talk about a deeper look at private equity. We've done a deeper look at real estate. Now let's give private equity its due. Deep dive. I think it's time. Uh, okay, why don't you uh, pepper me with questions today? We'll reverse the roles a little bit because this is my world and uh, I'm sure you're dying to learn about it. I am. I'm very curious. I mean, I know a little bit, enough to be dangerous, enough to lose uh, my own money if I if I don't go with a great sponsor <laughs> like yourself. Sure thing. So let's just start. So why don't you just give us a, just a, a quick overview of what you think uh, you know private equity is, how you define it, what kind of businesses you go after. Okay. So, so private equity to me is when you invest in a business or an, an operating business. So these are, these are businesses that sell a product or a service. They have employees. Um, it's traditionally what people think of when they think of what a business is. So, you know, it's not real estate, which is usually based on land or location. I think, so, and I think private equity, uh, differs from venture capital in the sense that private equity invests in sort of business with a history an operating history. So they've been around a while, they're generating revenue. They they have customers as opposed to venture capital deals, which are usually a dream or they're sort of on the come or they're early, very early. So you're not investing in startups as a private equity investor. Yeah, usually when people talk about private equity, they, they think about existing businesses that have been around for a while, not necessarily a startup. Got it. So but the idea it's is fuzzy. to... It's fuzzy. So the idea is to buy a business that has a track record of, of earning money that you can rely on and you kind of know what your baseline is and then you're trying to grow it from there. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to think about it. Usually with private equity, you actually have something to analyze, meaning the past of the business. So they've, how, what has their revenue been doing? What has their profits been doing? Um, is their market growing or shrinking versus oftentimes there's some venture capital deals where you really, you really don't have any history to go off of. You're just kind of going off of your your uh, your evaluation of the team and the idea and, and what you think the market might be. Yeah, because venture usually, you know, often they're losing money hand over fist. Right? <laughs> sure. In the early it's a badge days. of honor. The more money you're losing, the better. Yeah, burn rate. Okay, so yeah, so that's that's what I think of when I think of private equity. Okay, so how do you grow the company? How do you move the needle? Well, yeah, so I so that's I think that's probably you know, I think you hit on what is interesting about private equity is that you know well, I'm very insightful. You're very extremely as a you know and I. I would say, whereas in real estate, maybe you can't move the needle a lot. Like you have a building or you have a real estate asset and it is what it is. In private equity with these operating businesses, you, you really can grow these things. And I think that's what makes private equity interesting. So you can buy a business that's been kind of humming along at maybe a few million dollars a year in revenue. And, and if you believe in that market and you make the required changes, you know, you could turn it in, you could double, triple, quadruple the revenue of that business. So that to, to me, that's one of the best uh, advantages of investing in a private business like private equity is that you can really grow the business. Yeah. And that's what us real estate guys get envious of the private equity guys. You know, we generally can't triple, right, the revenue in a few years of an, a fully occupied apartment. Building, <laughs> At least, right? I'm just glad there's something that you're jealous of us about. Well, I have to give you something. I appreciate that. You know. Um, but yeah, you can, you can grow the business. You can reduce expenses. You can enter new markets. You can launch new products. You can acquire other companies, so you can actually have acquired growth. You can, you know, there's, so there's lots of ways to to grow a business, is and, that, and that's what makes. Is that like a roll up strategy? Yeah, I think you know when people talk about acquiring companies or roll ups, um, yeah, you're essentially buying other businesses and just kind of bolting them onto the existing business. Got it. 
Um, but anyway, so yeah, that's what I think that's what makes private equity exciting is, you know, you, there's, there's a lot of upside. There's a lot of ways to move the needle, a lot of ways to grow the business. And so with real estate, usually there's a strat, there's a precise strategy or there's one kind of segment and asset type you're going with, or even a, a particular market that you're focused on. Is it the same thing with private equity? Uh, yeah. So I think the private, there are private equity firms that have very specific strategies and they say, look, we're only going to do healthcare or we're only going to do low, lower middle market deals. Uh, as far as I can tell, lower middle market deals is sort of just code for small businesses. <laughs> um, and everyone has sort of a different definition of what that is. But yeah, so I, I think different private equity firms have different strategies. Some of these big guys will go after multi-billion dollar deals and some of the other guys will go after businesses that are only doing three, four, five, ten million dollars a year in revenue. So yeah, it's all over the map. So let's just for the audience tell, you know, who are the big guys? We got KKR, right? Blackstone, Apollo, Carlisle Group, Fortress. Yeah, sure. So when you think of private equity, all of, all of those names stand out to me. Um, these are guys managing billions and billions of dollars, right? So they, they have 10, 20, 30, 40, $50 billion funds, and they can, they can buy very big businesses um, as opposed to lots of other f- companies that, you know, most people have probably never heard of that maybe they have $100 million, $200 million, $300 million funds, and they're buying businesses that, uh, you know, frankly are a lot smaller and, and maybe, you know, not sort of national brands or, or businesses that most people would know about. So yeah, it's all over the map. And the smaller kind of under the radar funds, do they, similar to real estate, do one-off deals in addition to funds? You know, so there's there are what's called in, independent sponsors. These would be firms that do one-off deals. So they, they find a company that they want to buy. And then when, when they find that company, they go out and they raise the capital to buy that business. And so you, you'll hear different terms like fundless sponsor, independent sponsor, that search fund might fall into that category. And then there's... Funds that have committed capital; uh, these are traditional private equity funds where they actually have the money in the bank, and they don't they don't need to, you know, they don't need to go out and find the capital once they find a deal. They can they really have discretion over what they want to put their money into. Oh, discretion! It's the best. <laughs> it's freedom. But yeah, so yeah, so I think you're right. There's a lot of different strategies, um, different sectors, different sizes of businesses. But at the end of the day, everybody wants to buy a business that they think they can grow. Got it. And so this. I, when I think of private equity, I, I think of potential for pretty high returns. And of course, along with that is higher risk. But what, why do you think it has you know, higher risk and higher returns? Yeah. So I think with, with, with private equity, when you're buying an operating business, so a business that sells a product or a service, um, there's always the risk that, that the market could change on you where you know, that maybe the market doesn't, doesn't want to buy that product or service anymore. Uh, maybe a, a new business comes in that sort of is is a better product or service that sort of makes this your your product obsolete. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot more opportunity for your business to stop making money and frankly to go to zero, as opposed to what I hear you talking about real estate is you know, real estate definitely has its challenges and it can go down, but it's it's you know it's it's really never it's probably never going to go to zero. You have a location, you have something that people need. Um, whereas in private equity, I think there's a lot more volatility. Um, or excuse me, I should say a lot more risk that something can go away. Yeah. So it, you could be disrupted by a different business model or competitors, basically what you're saying. And so private yeah, sure. equity, the way I kind of think of it is real estate compared to private equity has a, a lower ceiling, but a higher floor. Yeah. I think that's a good way to think about it. And yeah. you, I don't think we've talked about sort of the trade off between risk and return and, and risk adjusted return. Oh, we but will. We, we can't wait. But essentially in private equity, I think usually investors want to see 
a higher return on their money, given that there's higher risk. Got it. Can you put uh, debt on these things? Yep. So similar to real estate, I think in the real estate episode, we talked about why um, real estate was great. One of the reasons real estate was great was you can get all this debt. Uh, you can still get debt in private equity. Uh, you can get debt on these businesses. Maybe not as much as real estate. I feel like real estate, you guys can get a ton of debt, but in, oh, typically yeah. in private equity, you can get you know, 20, 30, 40% of the purchase price can be in debt. Um, there's different types of businesses. So there's uh, asset light businesses, like a software business might you know, a software business, if you think about them, they don't have any real assets. They have people sitting in an office. What, the uh, IP, the code isn't an asset? Not, you know, typically not one that a, a lender will lend against. Uh, so maybe you can get a little less cash against that because you're lending against cash oh, flows. I got it. Whereas, Whereas like a, if they had a ton of inventory, you could probably use that as um, security for a loan. Yeah, inventory or even, you know, just, just assets like manufacturing equipment. businesses that have really heavy equipment that's worth a lot of money. Banks will lend, lend against that as well. So, yeah, you can get debt and that, again, that just juices your returns. So another way, so not only can you grow these things, and there's a lot of upside, but you can also get debt on them to juice your equity returns. Okay, so that's interesting because, you know... I've always thought of private equity. The first thing that comes to mind is the high leverage kind of big buyout, you know, mega buyout funds where they come in and they lever the thing up and they, they sell off unproductive assets and, you know, they clean shop, they fire a lot of people, reduce overhead, and then they try to, you know, goose the returns through growth. But that's not the entire private equity world. There's probably, it sounds like just a, a huge segment of the market that's focused on smaller deals where you can only get 20 to 40% of debt. Yeah. I, you know, so I, I don't, I'm not as familiar with those big leverage buyout deals. Um, you know, I, I know those were really popular in the eighties and nineties and even the early part of the two thousands. My, my sense is, those, is that those have fallen out of favor a little bit and that people are a little bit more conservative on the amount of debt they put on these companies. There's been some, there's been some high profile flame outs. Um, but yeah, I think the, the world that I'm familiar with is sort of maybe call it lower middle market private equity, you know, 20, 30, 40% debt, you're, you're, you're typically going to get your returns by growing the business. You're not necessarily just looking at getting your return by just putting a lot of debt on these and just juicing your equity value. Got it. So we're not talking about the Gordon geckos of the world where you come in and you, you know, you tell the shareholders they need to fire management and slash, you know, 50% of the payroll. Is that the guy from wall street? Oh yeah. Okay. I, I, I haven't even good. seen the movie. You <laughs> sounded pretty scary. Though. Sorry. Um, so I, and I would, I guess the, so again, you know, you can grow private, private equity, you can grow the business quite a bit. Um, you can get debt to help your returns. And then the third thing that's nice about private equity is that you can buy, you know, it's what's called multiple expansion where you can, you can buy a small to medium sized business. So take a business that's doing 5 million in revenue and maybe you pay five times profit for that business. So you pay 25 million bucks. If you can grow that business to 10 million in revenue, uh, it turns out the market. Well, then you say five times profit or five times revenue. Uh, excuse me, you're right. Five times profit. So let's say it's doing a million in profit. So you can pay, you maybe you pay five million bucks for that business. If you grow that business to ten million in revenue, so you double the size of it, the, the market values that scale and it will pay a premium for that. And so maybe now you can sell it for eight times profit. And so assuming it's still doing, yeah, you know, maybe now it's doing two million in profit. So you can sell that business for sixteen million. So you bought it for five times profit, and you sell it for eight times profit. So you just, you just made money simply because the business got bigger. So that does, I guess that makes sense to me in that in real estate, there's a portfolio premium often, right? Cause the buyer doesn't have to do all the work 
to create that portfolio and buy the one-off assets. So you can often get you know, the equivalent of multiple expansion in real estate for a larger portfolio. Is that is basically that the same thing what you're saying here? Yeah, I think it's similar. It's like someone someone else has done the work to get get it from smaller to bigger and put the infrastructure in place and so that people are willing to pay a premium for that. And is that because, you know, a lot of these funds, it doesn't make sense for them to do, you know, onesie, twosie, three, four or five million dollar deals because, you know, it takes the same amount of time as a 20, 30, 50 million dollar deal? I think that's part of it. It's just opportunity costs and sort of putting a decent amount of money to work. But I think part of it is also just it reduces risk. I think, you know, the bigger the bigger one these businesses get, the more infrastructure is in place, the more customers uh, they have. I think it I think it's just a less risky investment. Got it. Okay, so what do you look for in these deals? How do you find these deals? You know, what what are you kind of looking for? Yeah, so I I think of a few different categories of what folks typically look for when they're investing in private equity. So one, people look for revenue, right? So how much revenue is a business generating? Uh, yeah, you, you know, you don't want to. It's a little. It's risky to invest in a business that's doing you know eight hundred thousand in revenue, five hundred thousand in revenue, a million in revenue. Maybe like a local retail shop on the main street in downtown. You know, that that's a small business. That's a very small business. So. The higher the revenue, the sort of the less risky the asset is. And so typically private equity funds look for, you know, businesses that are doing at least five to 10 million in revenue. And then they kind of go up from there into the billions. You know, maybe individuals might look at deals that are doing sort of one to five million in revenue, but it's a little harder to invest in that range. So revenue is always a good proxy for how big a company is. How much revenue is it doing in a year? Um, the second thing we look at is profit. So you know, it's, it's great to make 5 million in revenue, but how much is actually profit? Because at the end of the day, that's what people care about. That's what's going to get distributed to shareholders, the profit. You'll hear this term EBITDA, uh, earnings before interest taxes, depreciation and amortization. But essentially, that's just a measure of profit. It's a fancy way of saying profit. Um, we call that net operating income. Yeah. Yeah. NOI, right? Oh, yeah. Look, <laughs> look, you've learned so much. I've been listening. Um so then if you, if, you, if you think about the profit a business generates as divided by the revenue it generates, that's what's called the, the net margin, uh, sort of the profit margin. And typically higher is better, right? So if you have a business doing 10 million in revenue and $2 million in profit, so that's a 20% net margin, that's great. You know, that's a, that's a good profit margin. Some businesses will do 30% margins. Some will do like 2 or 3% margins, and those are a little tougher to invest in. Um, and people also really like recurring revenue like that's Ooh, that's, that's been a best. that's magic yeah so recurring revenue is revenue that comes in on a repeated basis so maybe you have a customer paying you monthly uh like netflix might be a good example where customers are going to pay netflix 10 bucks a month every month in perpetuity uh, investors love recurring revenue because again it's just it's less risky as you can bank on it um you're not having to go out and constantly hunt down new customers just to generate revenue each month yeah, um, lumpy cash flows. You can't plan around that business, right? Yeah, so I think a good rule of thumb is that it, you know if you if you're over fifty percent recurring revenue, that's that's considered a pretty decent business. You know, over 70 percent recurring revenue, I mean, that's great gravy. And isn't don't you have to look at the quality of the revenue in terms of you know how many customers are generating that revenue? Yeah, so that's a good point. Customer concentration is something people look pretty closely at, or good investors will look at and say. You know, if one customer is generating 60, 70, 80% of your revenue, that's scary. That That's a tougher deal to invest in because, hey, what happens if that one customer goes away? And do you guys think of credit? Do you analyze credit of all these customers? Or if, if it's, you know, a ton of customers, I imagine it's less important. But if it's, you know, 30, it's more important. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that's as common, frankly. Huh. Um, 
I think it, I think that would be that might that might come up as you, if you, if if a, if a business does not have a lot of customers. I haven't seen that. Yeah, I haven't got. I've, we haven't gotten into the weeds in that that level. Of well, detail. you're kind of focused on software, right? So I imagine that's usually it's a lot of customers. Yeah. Oh, well, that's true. Yeah, it's a high volume of customers. So maybe you care less about each individual customer. But yeah, that's a good point. I, mean, I think if you had a very few number of customers, you might look a little closer about it you know, the viability of those customers and who they are. Yeah. Cause like in real estate, if you have a, an office property and there's only, you know, 10 tenants and six of them take up, you know, the vast majority of that space, you tend to look at the credit of those tenants. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. On an office yeah. building. Yeah. And that, maybe that is, that's one of the differences between these operating businesses and real estate is usually you're talking about hundreds and or thousands of customers as opposed to just, you know, five or 10 or 20. So that's, a good, that's a good point. Um, I, I think the, so, you know, revenue, profit, Recurring revenue. The, the other thing people look at or investors look at will be a history of growth. So it's always nice to see a company that's been growing. So if you can look at a company that's been around for 10 years and, hey, they went from 1 million to 1.5 million to 2 million to 2.5 million. It's like, okay, that's... It's a rocket ship. <laughs> it, gives you, it gives you confidence that you can continue to grow the business. Obviously, the past doesn't perfectly predict the future, but it just gives you some additional confidence. And then finally, you really, you want to just see growth opportunity. You want, you want to see a reason why you think you can continue to grow the business. So maybe you look at the market and you're like, all right, this is a big market and there's not a lot, it's lightly penetrated. There's a lot of customers out there that haven't bought this product or service yet. Um, and so that gives me a lot of confidence that we can continue to grow the business. Or maybe it's a really fragmented market. You know, there's just lots of tiny players. And so, hey, no one's really consolidated the market who really owns the market. So we, we have a chance to grab market share. Or it's a growing market, you know, so it's each year the, the market itself grows and there's just more customers out there. So those are, those are the kinds of things you want to look for. Cool. Okay. Well then how do you, <laughs> so how do you think about how much to pay for these deals? Yeah. So it, that's tough, right? It's, it's always, it's always tough to know what you actually want to pay for a deal. Typically the way investors will back into this is they'll, you know, they'll start with a targeted return. So an annual return. So maybe, you know, maybe someone wants to make 25% on their money. And so they think, okay, I want to make 25% of my money. And I think I'm going to hold this company for about five years before we sell it. And so that's, let's back into like what, you know, how much does revenue need to grow? Uh, how much does profit need to grow? Uh, what can I pay for this thing? How much debt can I get on it? So all these are variables that go into the model where you, where you really are driving at this ultimate return. And that, you know, once you sort of lock down how much you think you can grow it, how much you think you can grow profit, how much you think you can sell it for, how much debt you think you can get, you kind of can back into a price for what you want to pay for it. And, you know, that's, so that's, that's one way to do it. And typically though, there's good rules of thumb where you, you think of usually the price is a multiple, you think of the, as a multiple of revenue or EBITDA. So, um, a multiple of revenue would be, okay, let's, I'm going to pay two times revenue or three times revenue for this business. A multiple of EBITDA or profit might be, Hey, I want to pay, you know, five times EBITDA or six times EBITDA. That's typically the way people think about it. Um, you know, folks that have looked at a lot of deals, they start to get pretty good instincts. They know they can pay, you know, whatever, six, seven times EBITDA and hit their target return. Now, if you're doing a multiple on revenue, I mean, there's a ton of expenses that goes into that. So how do you, how do you pay a multiple on revenue? Is it just because you know the industry so well, you know, that this, there's going to be standard operating expenses, you know, the margin with, of that industry? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, so no, no, no buyer likes to pay on revenue. Sellers love to sell their businesses on revenue. Yeah, but, you know, typically the way that conversation would go is, Hey man, like this thing is a rocket ship. It's growing. You know, the seller would say this, this thing's a rocket ship. It's growing so fast. 
all, you know, all of the profits I've reinvested in the business because that's the best use of those funds. And so, you know, I, I don't show a lot of profit. So I want, you know, I don't have a lot of profit, but I have a lot of revenue. I want to be valued on that. Whereas the buyer might say, Hey, look, like ultimately profit is what matters. That's how we're going to be, you know, be paid. And that's how we're going to distribute cash to our investors. Yeah. And this so, is an Amazon. <laughs> exactly. So it's always a conversation you know, typically what happens is traditionally there's some industries that are valued on, on revenue, like software, for instance, is a, is a business that's, or is a, is a sector that's often valued on revenue simply because it is highly scalable. It grows fast. A lot of times they do reinvest in the business to keep growing. Um, whereas other businesses like manufacturing businesses might be valued on profit because they're a little, they don't grow quite as fast and you can get a, you know, they, they do spin off some cash. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I, you know, the ranges, I think of what's, uh, what's typical out there is maybe, I don't know, five to eight times profit is pretty typical. Um, it may be eight to 12 times profit for a really high fat, high growth, high growth company. Um, and then revenue again, I usually you see this in software where a seller might pay three times revenue or four times revenue or five times revenue for a business. Got it. But five to, so if you're paying a multiple of five to eight EBITDA, I mean, that's still, that's pretty good. I mean, in terms of, you know, how much cash flow you're getting relative to how, the price you're paying. They five multiple, uh, that's like a 20 cap rate in my world, in the real estate world, which would be an incredibly cheap deal. Uh, but I guess the, the point there is that still a riskier investment. That EBITDA is not set in stone. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's, that's, I mean, that's a good way to look at it, right? So five times EBITDA would be considered a pretty, a pretty reasonably priced operating business. And that would, okay, so that would correspond to a 20 cap rate. So one over five. Yep. And that would be considered a very cheap real estate oh, that, deal. Yeah. I mean, it, that would be a, a freaky deal. Yeah. You would never get a 20 cap rate unless the seller was just like, had no idea what they were doing. Yeah. And to me, that just comes down to, you know, the the risk profile, which, and also the sort of how much debt you can get, right? You can get so much debt on these real estate deals that I think, you know, sellers can get command a higher price because I know investors are going to get their return back. Yeah. But I, I do think it comes down to that, that risk component you were, you were touching on and the fact that it can go to zero and it's so there's so many variables to price into these things. You know, you can't just count on that revenue being there forever. Yeah. Yeah. And it's well, and, and obviously the amount of debt you can get on a business is closely correlated with how risky it is. That's what the yeah, lenders are thinking go. about. So yeah, it's all, it's all related. So it is, it does come down to risk. Yeah. So I like to, I like to fly by the seat of my pants here, Brad. I'm a risky guy. I can't believe how difficult that must be to put together this model because in real estate, there's really only a couple of variables that are really going to, you know, tweak the model, you know, and goose the returns, right? <laughs> it's like the, uh, you know, you can make the model do whatever you want at the end of the day, but in real estate, there's still like a, a range of reasonableness, right? You can, you can't double rents every year, right? So you, in, you know, your business, you can talk about 30, 40, 20% growth and it could happen. I know. Right. And so there's probably, I don't know, 20 different variables that are going to be meaningful. Whereas in real estate, it's like, okay, how much are we going to grow the rent? How much are we going to increase occupancy? And what is the back end, the sales price, you know, multiple, yeah. right? And it's, it, it is, it's, it's a lot harder to value an operating business, I think. And, and that's reflected, I think, in the range of prices that, buyers will pay for these things. So, you know, if, if you have a, if you have a good private equity deal or, you know, a good operating business that, and they're, they've hired a banker to go out and get bids. Um, it's not unusual for 
the high bid to be double the low bid, yeah. right? And so, it, I mean, that's a I huge range, it. right? Oh, and it, it. it all comes down to how, you know, all these different variables that you tweak in your model. So, yeah. Whereas in real estate, I mean, what do you think in an auction process in a deal? I mean, how much does the, you know, what's the variability between the top end of the deal or the bid and the low bid? So in the big leagues, when we're talking about, you know, billion dollar deals, $500 million deals, it's a, it's a pretty tight range, right? We're probably talking about, you know, five to 10%. Yeah. Right. It doesn't surprise me. It's, it's fairly efficient at the up, upper end of that market. Now at the lower end, then it's probably wider. It's probably more like 15 to 20, but, um, you know, it can get up to 15 to 20, but it's never going to be, you know, 50% if reasonable people are looking at uh, a real estate deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. So yeah, we're a different animal. Yeah. No, I mean, it's exciting over here, Brad. It's very exciting. It's very exciting. Well, I, I would end up spinning my wheels in these models be like, oh, well, what if we tweak growth a little <laughs> bit more and we we cut staffing? Yeah, and, yeah. Well, you could spend all day doing that. Well, I mean, we haven't even begun to talk about venture where it's even, I think it's even way worse in terms of the variability. Well, there you're just throwing darts. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, venture capitalists would not appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but their LPs might agree with you. Yeah. Uh, all right. So yeah, so that's, that's private equity. Um, would it be helpful if we got, did a quick example? Yeah, I'd love to hear a quick um, example. Okay. So let, let's take, I, so I looked at a, a, a pest control business one time. So pest control, everyone knows what pest control is, right? This is a business that has a bunch of trucks and they go out and they spray, maybe it's residential. So they spray homes with uh, chemicals to kill pests. Oftentimes this is recurring revenue where they'll go out once a quarter and kind of treat the, uh, treat the lawn. So these are good businesses, right? They do have recurring revenue. Um, they have you know, maybe 100, 200, 300 residential customers. Each of those customers is paying paying every time they come out. Um, and is this they, like Terminex, you know, with the little bug on the cars, you know, with the guy, the hammer that's... Yeah, Orkin. Like think, Orkin. Think Orkin. Orkin. Yeah, termites are a little different because those are oftentimes less recurring. Those are one time, you know. Wow, maybe, you know a lot about the pest control business. Super exciting stuff. Yeah. Also, termites are dangerous. Termite business is dangerous. There's some chemicals underneath those tents. But let's just take your typical pest control business. So you might look at this, you might look at a regional pest control company that's serving your town and maybe the next five towns. Uh, it might be doing five million in revenue. Typically, a pest control business might have a 20 to 30% profit margin. So, you know, they're doing one to one and a half million dollars in profit. Um, and, you know, maybe it's growing at 10%. So you look at that business, right? Five million in revenue, $1.5 million in profit, growing at 10% year over year. That's that's a good business, right? I mean, it's got recurring revenue. It's growing. So it kind of hits all of our, it's got good profit margins. It hits a lot of the things we're talking about. Um, so you, you might offer five to six times profit for that business, right? So that would be, you know, five times one and a half million dollars in profit, be seven and a half million dollars you know, maybe seven and a half to 9 million, 10 million bucks. That might be, you know, that might be a way to think about how much you'd want to pay for that business. So there you go. There go, you out, go. go out and buy a pest control business. There's actually been a couple of groups that have rolled up pest control companies, right? Yeah. I think it's a pretty common strategy. There's just so many pest control companies out there. And, and, uh, you know, they, once they, once they get a few hundred customers, it's their nice little acquisition targets. Yeah. I, I kind of think of pest control and security companies when I think of roll up opportunities that it's a pretty common strategy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 We would not be the first people to look at that. Yeah. Well, you know, I love down and dirty businesses, right? The, the non-sexy asset class is underappreciated. Oh yeah. Yeah. Everyone talks about, um, these sex, you know, everyone knows these sexy businesses, the Googles, the Facebooks, the, you know, the Apples, the Ubers, but yeah, oftentimes these unsexy businesses that are just fulfilling a basic need, you know, those are, those are the ones where the money can be made. 
Yeah, I mean, you're going to have fewer competitors, right? You're you're going to be less of a bidding process yeah, in these types of business. That's a good point. Yeah, and this is also one of the reasons why you know I think that everybody should have private equity in their portfolios because if you think about this, because of these weird little examples that we're giving and the wide range of pricing, you can actually create alpha, which is just you know outsized returns relative to quote the market, right? In private equity, it's easier to generate alpha, I would argue, than it is for a hedge fund to generate alpha in a very public, very competitive stock market where yeah. pricing is extremely efficient and everybody knows what the financials are. People, you know, have all the information. Whereas in the private markets like this, you know, there's just weird little quirks and different angles you can take with these businesses that can generate outsized returns. Yeah. Although it, I should, I probably should have mentioned this. It's also a lot more work. Right, it's a lot like, more work. You know, you're, if you're investing in the public markets, you buy a stock. You can just you can buy that stock and go on about your life. And with these, pri- you know, private deals like this, they they need management, they need oversight, they need advice, they need guidance. You know, someone needs to be in there running it and growing the business, and you need to be talking to that person. So, well, I didn't say that alpha was easy or free. <laughs> it's not. No, it's, <laughs> it's not. And that's why you know you pay asset management fees, right? And you pay a promote uh, to the sponsors, the quality sponsors that can generate these outsized returns because. It is a ton of work and you can't just, you know, click buy in E-Trade and, and you're done for the day and go to the golf course. Yeah, no, good point. Yeah. So there's shout out to all the private equity folks out there. We know you, you guys are slaving away doing a lot of work and hopefully you're making a ton of money. Absolutely. Well, what about exits? How do I, speaking of making a lot ton of money, how do you make the most money in these deals? Is it like real estate where it's mostly it's some cash flow and then some of it's on the back end? Yeah. So, so the, the exit, that's a good point. So let's talk about exits. So everyone in most private equity investments, you always are thinking about the exit, which is how do I get out of this thing one day? Um, you know, there's typically two paths, either you go public and you, you know, you basically sell your shares of the public markets or you sell the business outright. Uh, so you can either sell to a strategic or a financial buyer. What is a strategic buyer? <laughs> strategic is a fancy way of saying you're selling to a company that is in your same industry. It's another operating business and they, they see some sort of strategic value in acquiring you. So maybe that you have a product that they want to sell to their own customers and they think, oh, we'll just snap you up. Typically, strategics will pay more than financial buyers. Financial buyers are other private equity funds or other investors and, you know, they're going to they're going to do a similar analysis that you did when you bought the deal around profit and things ah, like that. Well, because the strategic probably has a much lower cost of capital. Right. If it, you say, you know, it's Oracle. Right. Their dividend is probably you know very small relative to the private equity. Gas cost of capital is probably in the low double digits. Right. His, I think, yeah. So I, that's a good point. I think return. I think it's a combination of a lower cost of capital and. Uh, the ability to generate much higher revenue from that business and maybe a financial are you buyer. Say, are you about to say synergy? <laughs> Synergies, exactly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what that means, but... Uh, oh, I hate that word, even though, you know, I'm sure it's true in some cases. Yeah, like, well, let's take the pest control business, right? So um, if, you're a, uh, if you're a big pest control company... God and help you. you. <laughs> and you already have a big HR department, a big payroll department... You know, you have a big R&D department. You can buy that. You can buy a pest control company and probably get rid of a lot of the employees and generate a lot more profit from that business because you already have those, you know, those are duplicated in your own corporate offices and you really just need those guys in the trucks going around servicing customers. So oftentimes strategics can can generate a lot more I'm profit. I'm just glad you didn't say exterminate excess <laughs> employees. Uh, yeah, no, that's illegal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, so exit. So either a strategic or a financial buyer, everyone wants to sell, you know, sellers want to sell to strategics. Um, but 
there's usually relatively few of those. And oftentimes there's more financial buyers out there. So that's what happens. All right. Well, I think that was pretty comprehensive. Oh, good. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed that. I, yeah, I did. That was lovely. Thank you for sharing your, your knowledge. Thanks for listening to The Alternative Investor. Since you made it this far, you should take a second to subscribe to the podcast and join our email list. There, you'll receive additional insights and insider access to the world of alternative investments. Just visit thealternativeinvestorshow.com.